Hebrews 12, 3 and 4. It says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that your spirit, uh, even now, begin to minister to our hearts and lead us to the throne of grace where we find mercy. Father, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You can all go ahead and be seated. If you'll remember last week, uh, I elaborated a little bit more on the race and running the race that is before us. We saw that in the first two uh, verses of Hebrews chapter 12. Then we went to Philippians uh, chapter 3 and we looked at verses 12 through 16. And we, I wanted to get, get across that point that this is a race. This is a marathon that we're on. And, and in our previous text in Hebrews uh, verses 1 and 2, we noted four practical applications that we found in chapter 11 that chapter on the heroes of the faith and we saw that we need to look and listen to the witnesses those witnesses not that they're necessarily around us right now cheering us on but the constant witness that we have from those great men of faith in scripture also we look at the heroes of faith here in recent times uh, grandparents grandfathers that have gone on before the Lord those who are still living that are a constant witness for us to look and listen to. We also saw that in that race, we are to shed everything that weighs us down and the sin that besets us. And then we saw that we are enlisted in the race. And if we haven't started and come off that, 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 that starting line, it's time for us to come off the starting line and get moving in a direction. And then lastly, the thing that links them all together, we have to keep looking to Jesus. There's no way we can look and listen to other witnesses unless we are first looking and listening to Jesus Christ. There's no way we can shed everything that weighs us down and the sin that besets us unless we keep looking to Jesus. And we cannot run the race with strength and endurance unless we have our eyes fixed on Christ. And I think that those things are so absolutely and vitally necessary in the Christian life, especially seen as it is compared to a race with great reward there at the end. And I think we see other an analogies in Scripture that are similar to, to, uh, similar to this. We see that of a box of boxing, that of a soldier, that of a farmer. And I want you to think about it for a, for a second. Everything that we look at in running this race, we can look at from the view of, a, of someone who's boxing. When, when you're a boxer, what are you going to do? You're going to look. You're going to listen to all those boxers that have gone before you. Those who, who their, their styles and their techniques are there before you. You're going to look at them. You're going to watch them. You're going to listen to their advice. We see that uh, they're also going to shed down all those things that weigh them down. How many times do you see boxers? What do they have to do before the fight? They have to have a weigh-in because they've got to be within that weight requirement. They're going to shed that weight. They're going to shed anything that can slow them down in that fight. And then once they get in that ring, strength and endurance. Why? Because in the end, there is that great reward. We see the same thing with a soldier. Same type of situation. 
They're going to look at the history of military battles and military generals and, and great wars, and they're going to look and they're going to listen to those witnesses. These men are also going to shed all that could weigh them down. And let me tell you what, I've seen Marines decked out in, in full gear. I know what happened, and, and, and trust me, when I say that's a bunch of stuff, they say, well, really, it's not enough. It's just the bare necessities. But they shed everything. And anything that can hinder them in the battle, they're going to get rid of it. And they're going to, and they're going to fight. They're going to fight with every bit of endurance and strength that they have. Why? Because they know that at the end, there is the reward of having victory. Farmers, same thing. Farmers, how do you think they do as good as they do sometimes? They look. And they listen to the testimony and the witness of all those that have farmed those lands before them. They're going to get rid of all the things that would hinder that crop from growing. And then they're going to plant and they're going to be faithful in the plowing of the fields and watering. And then the reaping because that harvest is going to come. Each one of those things is so important for, for them to do. And now that we've talked a, a lot about running that race... It's important to keep in mind, uh, and it helps us to focus on what we're called to in, in this life. We've got, we've got to focus on those things. And, and we talked about how that in, in the race that we're running, as we look and listen to the witnesses, as we shed all that weight that, that brings us down, the sin that besets us, and, and start running the race, the one thing that is an absolute necessity in our race that we're running today is that we Keep looking to Jesus. I figure a broken record sometimes will, will finally accomplish what it needs to do. We hear it over and over and over again. We need to keep looking to Jesus. And I, and I want to stop here before we move on in our text. And I want us to focus for a little bit on those words in, in verse 2. That, that looking to Jesus. I want to hit that again. Because it's so very important. There is a great need for us to heed that call. Because we get a similar one in verse 3 of our text today. And I really think we need to take these two things and we need to combine them. The Greek for looking means to look away from all else and to look steadfastly, intently toward a distant object. The idea is to direct one's attention without any distraction. And it is in the present tense, and it expresses a continuous. You hear me? It expresses a continuous and repeated action of looking. It's continuous. We are continuously looking, repeatedly looking to Jesus. And I just got to stop and I got to tell you, my friends, listen, that great cloud of witness, it's awesome. It's noble. It's noble to look at that great cloud of witness before us because we learn and we're strengthened so much by their constant witness and testimony to us. But our eyes... How's that little kid song go? Little eyes or something? You know what I'm talking about? Be careful, little eyes. Be careful, little eyes. And I would tell you that same thing as Warren. Be careful, little eyes. Keep looking constantly 
to Jesus Christ. And we truly and daily, continuously, repeated, repeatedly looking to Jesus as the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity. Our eyes need to be on Him. Our eyes need to be on the bread of life. The living water, our eyes need to be continuously on the Redeemer, our great high priest. Our eyes need to be focused steadfastly on the Savior and Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our creator and our sustainer. Our eyes need to be focused on the advocate, Jesus Christ, our mediator, the Alpha and the Omega. Are they there? This morning as you sit here, are your eyes focused on Christ? And we have to ask ourselves, are my eyes directed with all of my attention to him alone? Are we looking to Jesus, not just as we run with endurance this race, not just in the trials and tribulations and temptations that we face every day, but also are our, are our eyes consistently focused on Christ as we work? as we go to school, as we maintain our marriages and our family relationships, as we go about our daily duties, as we live, as we die, are they focused on Christ? Do you have your eyes looking away from everything else in this world, everything else in this life? Do you have your eyes away from the world, away from riches, away from power, away from status? Do you have your eyes away from looking at yourself. Eyes that are looking intently at Jesus Christ alone and the reward that awaits us off in the distance, is that where your eyes are at this morning? And are they continuously looking to Christ with no distraction? And oh, how many temptations would be avoided? How many pitfalls would be safely passed? How many sins never committed? How many heartaches never to be experienced if our eyes were only to be looking at Jesus all the times? And it is within our reach. We can purpose to do that in our daily race in the Christian faith. We can succeed, isn't it? Succeed in that. Why? And just a question: Why would you not want to have your eyes constantly on Christ? As a Christian, give me one good, solid reason to be looking at anyone else in this world. Are you looking to, to mother and father and grandparents and spouse and friends and celebrities? Take your eyes off the sin-sodden creatures and put them on the sinless Son of God, the Son of Man, the Savior of sinners. That's where your eyes need to be this morning. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where our eyes are called to be. Now today, 
As we are looking to Jesus, the text bids us to stop and consider him. And this too, I believe, is a necessity as we run this race of faith in this life. Today we're going to look at three things in our text. We're going to consider, we're going to ask the question, why consider Christ? Then we are going to look at considering Christ is for our benefit. And then the last thing is we are to consider the extent of our struggles. Let's go ahead and, and just uh, open up in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just ask that you richly bless us in Christ this morning. Through the preaching and the reading of the word, and may the Holy Spirit move and work upon our hearts and leave us not unchanged. May all glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So, why consider Christ? We're looking to Him. We're looking at Him. We have our eyes focused on Him. But now we're called to do this, this consider Him. And again, if we would consider Him, consider Christ, how many ills and injuries to our faith and the race that we are on would we avoid? How many the sins would be that we refrain from? How many trials would seem but trivial? The times of tribulation would, would only last for what appears to be just a twinkling of the eye. And dear Christian, I ask you, when was the last time in your heart of hearts, in the greatest depths of your mind and thoughts, when was the last time you stopped and considered Christ? When was the last time you considered Him in all the areas of your life that are going on right now? And this Greek word used for consider is a term used in mathematics. And it's used to signify, to compute by comparing things together in their due proportions. To form a just and accurate estimate. Have we done that with Jesus? Can you say this morning that you have truly considered him? Have we, have we compared he, the perfectly righteous, eternal son of God, to the horrors of, and persecutions in which he alone suffered and endured, all to redeem those who were loved by the Father? Have we considered him in that aspect? Dare we, dare we compare him and his sufferings to the decades of our own trials and tribulations? But first, let us consider this. Let us consider Christ pre-incarnate before he took on human flesh. And just try, if you may for a moment, and look upon and consider Christ Jesus in eternity's past. Before time even began. There he is with the Father in ineffable light, clothed in robes of glory, exquisite, extravagant as the Son of God 
in all his glory before time began. He is incomparable and indescribable and uncontainable. Think about him before all, before creation ever existed. Every one of you right now, consider him before time was. Consider the second person in the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus, as he agrees to the covenant of redemption with the Father for sinful men and women's redemption. And he knew in all his glories what it would ultimately cost him. Consider Christ, consider him, to whom all the angelic hosts of heaven fall down and worship and give praise to and cry out, holy, holy, holy. If we are to run this race with passion and perseverance, would it not greatly encourage us? Would it not greatly strengthen us to not only look to Jesus, but to consider him who in eternity's past chose us in him before the foundations of the world? Praise God that Christ in all his glory was there. And there are some who may not have surrendered to Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you've never repented of your sins. And I challenge you, I defy you this morning before all of creation to stop and consider Christ in all his glory and gaze upon him and upon him alone who can save you from an eternal hell that your sins will bring upon you. Look to Christ and consider him and be saved. The second thing I want us to do is I want us to consider, as our text has pointed out, he who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. When we face those hardships, when we face the hardships in life, those discomforts and those difficulties, do we step back and consider him? Consider what the Son of God had to endure to save us. Listen, it started at the very beginning. He was opposed at his very birth. There was no room for him in the end there in Bethlehem. Among his own family, no one would take the expectant Mary in. No one wanted him. Herod tried to kill him. His people were troubled. Imagine this. His own kinsmen were troubled to hear of his coming, the Messiah. They called him a devil. They said he was a glutton and a drunk and the friends of sinners. The Pharisees and the religious elite were angry because of his good deeds and, and the praises of the people when they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. They questioned his authority. They opposed his teachings and constantly insulted him. They wanted to lay hands on him violently. They conspired against him. They were filled with wrath against the son of God. They tried to throw him off of a cliff as they thrust him from the city. They called him a blasphemer. They tried to provoke him. They laid in wait 
for him and sought to catch him and accuse him. They hated him. Listen, they hated him for doing good on the Sabbath. They constantly derided him. They wanted to stone him. They accused him of speaking against Caesar. He was ridiculed as the prophet. He was laughed at as the king. He was blasphemed as the priest and savior. And look at our text. And what does it tell us to do? Consider him, Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Consider him as they did this, as they took him into custody like a common criminal. Consider him as they beat him, slapped him, pulled his beard from his face, as they spit upon him. Consider Christ as they placed a purple robe on him and beat a crown of thorns into his brow and then came on bended knees to mock him as the Lord and King. Consider him as they brutally flog him, bruising his flesh and then tearing it off in ribbons, letting the blood flow freely from his knees to his chest and from his back to his abdomen. Consider Christ as the nails were pounded into his hands and his feet and the splinters went into his back and as his bones came out of joint. And even while he was dead, it didn't stop. The Son of God dead there on the cross and they had to push it a little bit more by taking a spear and thrusting it into his side just to make sure. Yes, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53, 3. Do you consider him? Do you consider him who endured the likes of that for your salvation? And do we think, are we arrogant enough to think that our cup of trials and tribulations be more than that of the Son of God? Do we think that we have been more opposed by sinful men than He? That our lives are filled with more sorrow than the righteous one of God, Jesus Christ, and the other saints that have gone on before us? But wait. Let's look at a third consideration. Let's consider Christ the Lord at his ascension, risen from the dead. Look at Christ and now consider him in all his glory in heaven where he resides today. Look there at the throne of God and see the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Look there and see the lion of the tribe of Judah. Stop and consider that he has conquered death and Satan and sin, the Christian's great mortal enemies. Watch him and consider him as he ascends to the Father's right hand in all glory to take his rightful place. Consider that even now he is intercessing before the, our Heavenly Father for us. He is there as our advocate. Look. <clears throat> For one moment, 
Look in your Bibles to Revelation. Revelations chapter 1. And look at the description that is given to Christ in all His glory. Revelations chapter 1. Look in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Consider the Christ that is glorified now and appears like that before John. Turn over to chapter 19 and look in verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Have you considered him? Have you considered a Christ in all his glory like that today? This same Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Oh, now I beckon you, consider him. Now exalted, higher than all the heavens, to which one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you consider him in that way? It's an obvious question for us. Do you consider him? If you are not daily considering Jesus Christ before his incarnation and all his glory and upon his ascension after his resurrection, if you're not considering what Christ endured to save you this morning, I doubt that it would make much difference whether you consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And I just got to tell you, If I'm in a race, if you're in this race, it's a marathon that requires every bit of strength and endurance and the reward is Jesus, we need to drop to our knees this morning and consider Christ. We better come on bended knees looking to Jesus and considering him. Considering him again in that pre-incarnate glory. 
considering him and, and, and what he endured, the greatest hostilities for our salvation, considering him glorified, seated at the right hand of the Father as our King and Lord and our Savior. And let me just go back and remind you that the great theme throughout the book of Hebrews is the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all of creation. Supreme over creation. Supreme over the angelic beings, over Abraham, over Moses, over Joshua, over Aaron, over the, over the Levitical priesthood, over the sacrifices. And for the author's readers at this time, this is a must. If they are suffering in tribulations and trials to any degree, they would not make it. They would not endure. They would not persevere to the end unless, if they were, if they were looking at all those other things, Moses and Abraham and all them, if they were had their eyes focused on them and considering them, they would not endure to the end. They had to keep their eyes firmly focused on Christ, considering him. So if we come to the place of suffering and persecution and trials and tribulations, if we do nothing but consider him who has gone through more than we ever could imagine endure as he did, we surely will. If we do nothing more than look unto him and consider him, we will endure to the, to the end. And Christians, keep looking to Christ. Keep considering he who endured such hostilities from sinners. Next thing I want us to look at is this. Considering Christ is for our benefit. Our text then says, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So why do we consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself? Because in a marathon race, in a fierce battle, the temptation is great to give up. It's, it's very great to give up, especially when overwhelming opposition or obstacles arise in our lives. One time, it's been years ago, <clears throat> I, I, I got a bunch of guys from the fire department together and we entered this competition. It was called the Firefighters Combat Challenge. It had a bunch of obstacle, it was an obstacle course that you had to do. First thing you had to do is you had to run up five flights of stair, uh, stairs and get to the top and you had to hoist up a roll of uh, inch and a half hose line. It was probably about, you know, probably 35, 40 pounds. Had to hoist that up, you had to come back down. You had to get a, a 20 pound sledgehammer and there was a, I think it was a 150 pound sled. You had to hit that thing until you knocked it back the six or eight foot that it was. Then you had to run this little obstacle course and you had to grab up a hose line, drag it for 50 feet, had to open it up, hit the target, knock it down, and then the coup de gras, 180 pound dummy laying on the ground. You had to hoist the dummy up and you had to walk backwards. I think it was 100 feet. Man, I trained for it. I gave it everything I had. I, I was a lot lighter then. I was in a lot better shape. And we got there for the competition that day. And guess who was the first one up? 
guess who failed? <laughs> I've had nightmares about that ever since. I got to the very end, and I got that dummy, and I made it about halfway, and my legs gave out. And I tried to get back up. I tried so hard to get back up, but my legs, they, they just, both my legs went like this. Nope. And there I am on the ground. It was so, my legs, my legs cramped up so bad that they had to carry me off. And all the guys that came with me from our fire department, they all went, Rob failed. How are we going to do this? And now, looking back on it, as I, as I look at all this that we talk about dealing with the race and all that, I wish that I would have grabbed that dummy's uh, handle in my teeth and, and on my hands and knees, just like a dog, all the way to that finish line. I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have laid there and let the next 20 people come by me until I could get that dummy across the finish line because I failed. And maybe that's why I'm so passionate about running this race without failing anymore. June 6, 1944, D-Day, Normandy, France. The men who took those beaches, what a, what a beautiful picture for us of men who would not give up even if it cost them their lives. Most of you have seen the movies and you've, you've seen the pictures and you've read the books, you've heard stories about it. I've seen those beaches. I've walked those beaches. I've been inside those bunkers that were fortified. I've seen the terrain in person and I cannot even begin to understand how they did it. It's really, if we stop and think about it, D-Day is a miracle. It's a miracle that those men succeeded. The opposition was overwhelming. I'm telling you, when, you, when you're down on the beach and you look up on those, on, the, on those cliffs that overlook the beach and you understand the guns that were up there aimed at those men coming up the, that beach, the opposition was incredible. And they should have grown weary. They should have grown faint-hearted. They should have quit. But they didn't. They considered the great price. They knew the need of Western Europe and, and, and the entire world. And they looked past the obstacles to the reward. And they persevered until freedom came. And see, the author here wants those Hebrew Christians to take a moment and to consider all that Jesus went through in his life, his witness and his testimony, everything that he had done, everything he accomplished, and he wanted to let it encourage them as to not grow weary, not grow faint-hearted in the race that was before them. And it could have easily happened to them. The very word weary here means to be exhausted. Think about the last time when you were just utterly exhausted. You were spent to the point that you could not go on under any circumstances. That's the idea here. 
And therefore, they were being in the depths of despondency to the point of having their resolution broken. Their spirit is so, so sunk completely to the depths under oppositions and trials and difficulties and persecution, even to the point that they would look back and renounce their faith in the Lord Jesus. We watched a movie uh, Friday night, uh, Silence. And you see in that movie what we're talking about here. That renouncing of one's faith. A.W. Pink said reproaches, losses, imprisonments, scourgings, being threatened with death have a strong tendency to produce dejection and despair. They present a powerful temptation to give up the fight and not but the vigorous activity of faith will fortify the mind under religious persecution. Only as the heart is encouragingly occupied with Christ's endurance of the contradiction of sinners against himself will our resolution be strong to endure unto the end. In the world, you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus said that in John 16, 33. And that is why we must fight fiercely, valiantly against becoming faint-hearted because it leads to weariness. And the only antidote against weariness and faint-heartedness is, guess what? Looking to Jesus and to consider Him continuously. We must follow hard after the words of Peter when he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. See, we have to daily start out our race by doing several things. And in, in, in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So if we're going to run this race and we're going to look to Jesus and we're, and we're going to consider him, we're going to do these things. We're going to be strong. We're going to put on the armor of God. We're going to remember who our enemy is and what we're fighting against. And we're going to stand firm, praying at all times in the spirit. That's how we're going to get through this. That's, the, that's what it's going to cost us. Paul tells the, the Corinthians in chapter 16, <clears throat> in verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. The only way we can do that is when we look to him and we consider him who endured such things for us. Last point is this, to consider the extent of our struggles. Our text says in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, 
You have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The author here is specific. He is talking about them. He's talking to these Hebrew converts to Christianity. He says uh, in the text, your struggle. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and look at verses 32 through 34. This is how we know he's talking about them. He tells them, 10.32, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that yourselves, that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The opposition and the persecutions had waxed hard against them already uh, at the hands of their own countrymen, at the hands of their families. And it would grow more cruelly than they ever could imagine. And he's here encouraging them by reminding them that it's not as bad as it could be. And I know that sounds horrible because we hate that, don't we? Man, you get a licking when you're a kid. Yeah, you just better be thankful. It could have been a lot worse. You get in trouble at work. That's the first thing out of their mouth. Well, you're just lucky you only got one day off. Anything that we go through in life, somebody's there bound to be there saying, well, you know, I know that toothache's bad, but you could have cancer. We don't want to hear that. But that's exactly what's taking place here. He's reminding them it can be a lot worse. And it would be. They had not, to this point, been called upon to shed their blood or give their lives. Things had been bad. Things had been really bad, as a matter of fact. But not as bad as it could be. Pink says, What could be expected to sustain their hearts and deliver from apostasy when under the supreme test of death by violence if they had fainted beneath lesser afflictions? We too should honestly face the same alternative. If unkind words and sneers make us waver now, how would we acquit ourselves if called upon to face a martyr's death? Christian, listen. You've got to count the cost. You've got to count the cost now. Because that day of reckoning for our faith may be a lot closer than any of us really know. Will you grow weary? Will you grow faint? And I think we see another analogy here, that of armed combat, where blood would flow. Think of the Roman Colosseum, whether it was, uh, whether it was the, the bare-knuckle boxing that they had, or, or they had weapons like a mace or a club or a sword, an axe, what they engaged in was a fight to the death, a fight for life. And I don't think there are many people outside of military personnel who have seen combat and law enforcement officers and people who do that crazy mixed martial arts fighting. I don't think there's anybody that can really begin to grasp the intensity and the risk that is involved. He says, in your struggle 
against sin. Sin is here the great opponent, the challenger for the Christian. It is he, it is sin that we are actively engaged in combat with. It is sin that will use persecution and trials and afflictions and tribulations to beset us, to hinder our progress, to oppose us. And it's sin who wants to ruin our faith, wants to destroy every ounce of obedience and faithfulness we have to our Lord and Savior. And sin wants nothing more than our utter destruction. There will be no quarter, there'll be no parley. And sin wants the believer to apostatize, if possible. A complete abandonment of the Christian faith. See, the true child of God, he's the one who will endure and persevere and go the distance no matter what it costs him because he has his eyes firmly fixed on Christ and he has considered him and he knows what the reward is in the end. He will not apostatize no matter the cost. And can you say today, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord as, Jesus, as Paul did? The only way the Christian can do this is to consider him. To consider what Christ has endured. And come on, let's just be honest. <clears throat> let's just be honest with each other. Let's just throw it out there. The most that a great majority of Christians across this globe have suffered for the cause of Christ is maybe a paper cut from the Sunday Bulletin. That's the most that they've suffered. Or maybe it was a stubbed toe getting out of bed, getting ready for church in the morning. That's, that's it. That's all you've ever suffered for the cause of Christ, truly. And the only persecution that we've encountered in this life is a strange look when we pray in a restaurant over our meal. Or someone maybe laughing at our WWJD t-shirt. Or maybe someone making a mean post in regards to a Jesus meme that we put on Facebook. That's it for our persecution. Let me ask you, are you considering Christ? Considering him in, his, in all his glory before time. Considering him in the flesh as he endured the wrath of men. Considering him in his glory now as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jeremiah 12.5 tells us, If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of Jordan? Christian, are you looking to him? Are you considering Christ. And see, there's great comfort as we think about this this morning. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's 
sufferings. You share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory, glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory of, and of God rests upon you. Find comfort in that this morning. But also take a warning from it that you cannot grow weary and faint-hearted because they are skulking about in the shadows waiting for you to fall and take you in. Oh, there's hope today. There's hope, but it's only in Christ and only He will sustain you as you look to Him and as you consider Him. And we should be rejoicing that the Spirit of God moving and working inside of us is bringing us to endure and persevere to the very end so that we gain that reward of eternal life. Imitate Christ. Imitate Christ, the one who endured such afflictions. Philippians chapter 3 and verses 10 and 11. He says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Oh, this morning, Christians, imitate Christ. Imitate what you have your eyes looking to. Imitate the one to whom you wake up in the morning and you consider him in all his glory. And exalt him. Lift up the one to whom you look to this morning and consider. Let's pray. Father, let your spirit move and work upon our hearts this morning for your honor and glory. And if there's one person here, Lord, who has not come to know Christ, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that today they would realize that they have fallen short of your glory, that they are going to pay the wages of sin, which is death and separation from the living God, his grace and his mercy. But Father, show them that your love was there for them while they were still sinners. And that Christ died for them. And that all they must do is to confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord. And believe in their heart that you raised him from the dead and they will be saved. That they must believe in the heart and confess with their mouth and they will be saved. Oh God, do a work in us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.